welcome to Plenary Session. I'm your host, Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm a practicing hematologist-oncologist, and I'm Associate Professor of Medicine. I'm interested in issues at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy, and that's what you're going to get on this podcast. Welcome to Season 2. This week on Plenary Session, you're in for a real treat. I'm back in the studio with the discussion of polituzumab vidotin and relapse refractory DLBCL. Is this trial suitable for regulatory approval? You won't want to miss this discussion. We're back in the JCO, reading a paper by Lori Sen and colleagues. This is a pivotal trial, a trial that led to drug approval. Afterwards, we're joined with Question of the Week with Dr. Emerson Chen. And finally, an interview with Dr. Ali Kaki. Dr. Kaki is the Chief Fellow of Hematology Oncology at the University of Washington Fred Hutch Cancer Center, and he is here to discuss a new paper that he led that appeared in the JNCCN. You won't want to miss this. It's a discussion of gene expression profile-guided risk-adapted treatment strategies, and it has philosophical implications for every such risk-adapted strategy in all types of medical practice. You won't want to miss this discussion. But first, a thanks. I want to thank those of you who've gone online and support this podcast on Patreon.com. Patreon subscribers get access to the slides from lectures I give on Plenary Session. I also want to thank the hundreds of you who've gone to the iTunes store and reviewed this podcast. We appreciate that feedback. I also want to thank the dozens of you who've written reviews. A written review goes a long way. What can Plenary Session do for you? Email us your questions at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. Tweet to us at plenary underscore session. Let us know what you like about the podcast and let us know what you don't like. This year on season two, we're going to incorporate some new elements in the podcast and we want to know your feedback on them. Well, you know, I love going on Twitter. And uh, the last few weeks did not disappoint. I read a few Twitter threads that made me laugh, laugh quite heartily. And I thought I'd share one of them with you. It's on a topic that you know I know and love, which is how important it is to find soft targets on the internet. Quote, tweet them, and dunk on them for no reason whatsoever. So this all begins with a tweet that came out in the middle of the month by a doctor who nobody follows and nobody cares about. A doctor who I think was followed by a hundred and odd, hundred odd people who tweets a picture of himself bathed in red light. Quote, red light heals. Hashtag red light, hashtag therapy, hashtag red light therapy, hashtag natural health, hashtag health, hashtag health and wellness, hashtag wellness. Well, well, well. And that tweet, when I first saw it, gotten like one retweet, 12 likes. It was doing its very best to be lost to the far corners of the internet. No one was going to read it. No one was going to care. Red light heals. A doctor bathed in red light. And, you know, heals what? Who knows? He's not really being very specific. Um, And on what basis does he say that? He's not being very specific. It was the kind of tweet that should have been let go, you know, let lost to the sands of time. One can't go through all social media platforms and find everything that may, may or may not be incorrect and, and, and flag that for discussion. That would be a waste of a society. That would be a waste of human capital. But luckily, this person was quote tweeted by somebody with many, many more followers who says, there is no evidence to support that quote red light heals. I know many followers of mine have chronic pain and chronic illnesses. Please don't let greedy people take advantage of you. Hashtag health. 
I guess I'm not sure at the beginning that this person who's pictured promoting red light is somehow in the red light vending business. It's not clear to me that that is the case. But nevertheless, this person decided to dunk on it. Somebody writes back, what about hair regrowth? All right. Well, I don't know about that. Okay. Somebody says, I just realized you got over 8K followers. Okay. Uh, Who is he? Uh, Somebody says, placebos work, but let's make them inexpensive ones. Buy copper bracelets on Etsy. I would think red light's got to be pretty cheap, too. Um, Also, warm is going to help some pain, but you can achieve that with, like, a bath, says this person. Epsom salts and baths and heating pads and warm socks. Okay, I don't know how that's the, is trashing red light, okay? So if, 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 the, if the claim here, I guess what they're assuming is if the claim of red light was that the red light was in fact heated and the heat from the light was helping achy joints, you don't need red light, you could do that with a big heating pad. But then the counterclaim would be, but then why would you oppose red light if it too is heating the body and heat is helping, if that's, what, if that's what's going on here? Somebody writes, red light therapy is another common amenity at Planet Fitness. People also write, no, it doesn't. At UVA Med alum, at UVA Medicine. Sound like, sounds like this alum needs to go back to school. Oh, that's always a classic one. You got to tag someone's boss in the tweet. Get him in some trouble. What even, dot, 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 this is a new one. And then, of course, because it's quote tweeted, it leads to lots more replies. Pretty sure you're confusing red light with red kryptonite. They're both their fictional effects. Heals what? And then some other classics. No, it doesn't. Quacks like you are dangerous. At least I have evidence to back up my claim. Can you cite the evidence for this claim? Thanks. Uh, where's the evidence to support this quackery, question mark? Um, what about yellow light like sunlight? Quack, says one person, definitely does not. No, stop lying to people, you disgraceful quack. Why are you lying to people, says another person. Wow, wow, wow. And then finally, the tweet that really caught my attention was, I can't believe all these people dissing red light therapy. Open your mind. And then they put a link to a PubMed paper. And it is, in fact, a randomized control blinded endpoint study of red light therapy and at least other additional lights. Uh, And it measures uh, the response of facial features such as wrinkles and uh, and measures of of, of collagen in the face uh, to exposure to red light. In fact, a randomized study with five arms uh, that is a blinded endpoint study. And of course, that comment received no further comments or tweets that that was just ignored. So what do I love about this? I think this is like soft targetism at its finest. You find a thing that is so stupid that you don't, you shouldn't waste your time with. Red light, what is it healing? Who cares? You know, it's up to this person if they want to really expand upon it. Are they saying that it's a warm red light? And then you say, well, if it's a warm red light, well, you know, go to hell with your red light. You can get a warm blanket. But then you don't really make it clear why you support a warm blanket but not a warm red light. Um, and, uh, and, you know, so let's say you don't make it clear why a warm red light is bad and a warm blanket is good. Okay, but then you get yourself worked up. He's a quack. He's a terrible doctor. He's a salesman, although I'm not even sure he's in the red light business, and I'm not sure that's a very lucrative business to be in. You tag the program that trained him. Then finally, someone comes along and gives a reference that is a PubMed index randomized control trial that is in fact blinded to the primary endpoint of the study. And it all goes silent. All goes silent. Poof! Silent. I had a chance to peruse this randomized control trial. I do have some thoughts. I'm not saying I'm a supporter of this randomized trial. If I put it on plenary session, it could go a few rounds, and it wouldn't, uh, it wouldn't do so well, I don't think. But what I think is interesting is that uh, it's all fun games to be in the soft target criticism business until, of course, somebody makes you have to use some technical skills and how to legitimately read and evaluate papers. Um, and then it's not as fun. 
In fact, it's so unfun that nobody decides to take this person up on the task of commenting on it. Um, and I think what's really going on here is the following. There are many people on Twitter who want to drive up their followers. Why they want to do this, I'm not exactly sure, because there's nothing worse on planet Earth than being followed by somebody who really doesn't want to follow you. If you just drive up your followers, and there are people who don't really like what you're saying, it's going to be quite annoying for you when they chime in with um, misconstruing everything you go on to say. So I don't know why this is a, this is a thirst. Uh, but in fact, it's just another brass ring people like to chase. Uh, and that's why you see these lovely tweets that say, I'm at seven followers away from 3,000, eight followers away from 1,000. The begging, pleading tweets for, for followers. It's very sad. I wonder if, um, if that also goes on in people's personal lives. I'm, I'm just two people away from eight people at my dinner party. Please, 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 please come to my dinner party. Uh, I think that would look um, pretty sad and embarrassing. So, so you had this behavior going on, this soft targetism behavior, which I believe is predominantly being done um, to, um, you know, to, to be a part of a tribe where we are smart and we know that red light is stupid and obviously flimsy. Um, and, and, and it's fine. You know, I, I don't have a problem with it, except when, of course, you see it done by people who are uh, medical doctors training to be doctors um, uh, who presumably are acquiring a very specific and, and highly sought after set of skills. Um, that presumably they should take um, to tackle, I think, more important problems in society. Uh, problems where the budgetary impacts are higher, where the potential risks are greater, um, where the potential for all of us to spend our money is more than just some people spending their money, which really is outside of society's purview to some degree, as we discussed with Audrey Tran. Um, so I do think it's sort of uh, a waste of their time to do this. Uh, but what really got me here was when somebody actually came to the table and brought a reference to a randomized control study with blinded endpoints uh, showing a difference between red light and, in fact, no intervention at all on two endpoints with a p-value with uh, a few zeros in it. There's not a single person who decided uh, to tackle that and to, to go in deep on that. Uh, there are people who were not even aware of that study, I'm sure. That's what, they got them all, that's what got them all worked up in the first place. And of course, when the study was dropped, they quickly, quickly shut up. Um, no, they didn't shut up. They just quickly ignored that, uh, that point and, and talked around it. Uh, this is, uh, this is a total joke. I mean, it's just a total joke what's going on online. Um, I, 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 I really do think that by, you know, by, by hitting the nail on the head of this soft targetism, I'm, I'm, th I'm talking about something broader, which is people's desire to be popular, even if what that means is talking about frivolous and insipid things. And I think that's what you see in the media's coverage of news stories, why blueberries and, uh, and green tea get so much coverage and, and well-done randomized trials of, of nuanced things in biomedicine, uh, even with a uh, huge billion-dollar budgetary impact, uh, don't get that discussion because you have to have a lot of technical knowledge to approach that question. And it's not as frivolous, um, you know, a couple of years ago, there's a study that said, do dog owners live longer? That's, that's a much more popular study um, than, than these sorts of studies that, you know, potentially matter. And so you see that in sort of the news media, you see that in the things that get clicks. And I think you see that from doctors um, on social media who decide what to, to, to talk about. Uh, and then I think the additional thing here is that, um, you know, it's a lot easier to use your degree uh, to talk about 
frivolous things um, and to just say there's no data, it's stupid. Uh, it's a lot more difficult to actually read a five-arm randomized control trial um, with a blinded endpoint and to actually say what is the what is incorrect in that study, if there's anything incorrect, or would you hang your hat on that study? Um, in this in this study that somebody cited, uh, that's a lot more difficult, um, and 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 that to me speaks to a broader theme that I talk about, which is this idea of careerism. That you hear so much advice of what people should do with their careers to build a following, go to conferences. Uh, the one thing I never hear anyone say is, "You got to be good at what you do. You got to work to be better at what you do." Uh, that's what I don't hear anyone saying, and that's the only thing that you should be saying. That's the only advice I give trainees. You want to have a career in academic medicine, you got to read papers better. And and here's how you would start doing that. It takes practice, it takes work. Uh, you got to read more. You got to think about the problem uh, more critically. You got to read um, some people who are just masters of pushing your pushing you to more critical thinking. Um, you know, so so there you see this as well. With that, you know, it's 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 so much easier just to avoid that that uh, reference altogether and just to talk around it and and to criticize this tweet that you know nobody was reading in the first place. Uh, so it's it's entirely sad. Um, and it reminds me of another related topic, which was um, the top 100 oncologists on Twitter was also a, a list that was published. And you see figures in the field say, oh, look at me. I'm at number 62 and I'm going up. And, and that is just crazy to me that you're getting, you know, oncologists who have practiced for decades who care that they're number 62 on the you know, useless social media companies, rankings of top oncologists. Um, and it led me to a, a tutorial rant where I made a few points. One, these lists are inherently inaccurate. And how do I know that? Uh, Derek Tao, a few years ago, listeners of this podcast will know Derek Tao. Derek Tao uh, built this huge data set to study financial conflicts of interest on social media, which we published a paper in uh, Lancet Hematology and a paper in JAM Internal Medicine on. And Derek Tao found um, in his data set that there were rampant financial conflicts among doctors on Twitter, probably more than the average doctor, more than the average bear, which I think speaks to speaks to something, which I'm happy to talk about another day. Um, but uh, in doing so, Derek Tao, by hand, uh, built a registry of 640 hematologists oncologists, if I recall correctly. And when and by building this, we know 640 oncologists and we know there's follower numbers and we know all this stuff. And when we compare our list to, you know, these published rankings, uh, there are notable omissions. There are people um, who are not on the list. Um, and there are people who are added to the list who didn't make our cut. And, and that's quite curious to me. I almost wonder if some doctors are paying these companies some money um, to get themselves included in top 10 or top 20, um, and to do so, the list has to be doctored a little bit. Uh, the next thing I wonder is many of the people on this list um, with uh, a lot of followers um, also themselves follow 40, 50,000 accounts or follow 250,000 accounts and they have 250,000 followers. One wonders if they actually paid a third-party service to, um, you know, to follow many, many accounts. Statistically, one in every five or three will follow you back and then you unfollow the other ones to build your following and all other sorts of stupid games that somebody might play. Um, and I suspect that, in fact, many of them probably have done those things or they've bought followers or something foolish like that. Um, which is a deep embarrassment, very sad thing to do, obviously. But uh, is it any sadder than than searching the far corners of the internet to find a tweet on red light um, and to dunk on it? 
um, and actually really not say anything of substance that said it's stupid, you're a quack, it doesn't work. And then when somebody actually responds with something of substance, you have nothing to say. Uh, you have absolutely no rebuttal and you really like over your head because you have to read a paper and actually critically appraise it and shoot, you didn't sign up for all that. Um, I think it's all part of the same, the same sort of pathology, this desire that you know, our self-worth is, is tied to what um, an extremely select handful of people on social media think and that uh, we need to be part of groups where we all say the same thing that we all agree on and we think the other group that doesn't agree on this thing is really stupid. Um, and uh, we don't really want to look inward on our profession and actually ask, um, are there things within our tribe that are super costly, expensive, potentially harmful, that are unproven, that we do every single day uh, that would require technical knowledge and expertise and training to really crack open and try to persuade others in our field who are persuadable because we have all uh, fundamentally, as physicians, creatures of reason and evidence, even the worst of us will still at some point come around. Um, and that's a lot harder work. Uh, and, and, and just so much more important. So I think the lesson of this red light tweet, which I found funny, especially when they threw up that reference and that really shut him up, um, is that don't waste your time. You have to, if you listen to this podcast, I implore you, I beg you for, for my sake, for the sake of oncology, for the sake of medicine, go after what really matters. Your career is super short. You don't have time for these frivolous topics. You got to go after what matters and you got to think about things right. You can criticize an article, and you can be right that it's wrong, but you can be wrong about what it's wrong, and that doesn't help anybody. You've got to be right that it's wrong, and you got to be right about what's wrong. you got to do both. That's effective criticism, and that's a very tough skill. And when I go to journal clubs, um, I often hear criticism, but some of it is wrong criticism. And we all know the greatest example of wrong criticism is that Orbita was an underpowered study. And if you listen to this podcast, we discussed that it is not, in fact, underpowered. It was a randomized trial where the primary endpoint was modified Bruce exercise treadmill tolerance. And they powered that study for a 30-second difference in time, which is beneath, maybe 10 seconds beneath what is the minimally clinically important difference that is predefined by cardiologists. So, in fact, this trial is overpowered to detect the MCID. It is overpowered to detect the minimum difference you think matters. And yet the sample size is 190, 200 patients, roughly, in that study. Um, and people fault it for being underpowered. But as Daryl Francis says, the only thing underpowered is their brain. And he's right because it's, it's, it's the wrong criticism. You know, I often hear people say it's easy uh, to be a critic. It's hard to do things. Actually, no, it's very difficult to give the right criticism. The right criticism delivered the right way uh, to the right audience is super persuasive. And it gets a huge response. And people cannot really argue uh, people within the field, and they may even secretly change their mind. And then a few years later, they'll come to you and they'll act as if they never held the other view all along. And I've gotten that a couple times in my career. Um, and that is what you have to do more of. So let the red lights go. And if you're going to pick on the red lights, then at least have the, the courage when they throw up a reference to, to go in on it. Don't just ignore it have the courage to handle that. And if you don't have the courage to handle that reference, then don't be talking about red light on the internet. Go back, hit the books, get better at reading studies, and then come back and talk about what actually matters. All right. On that positive note, we're going to turn to something that does matter, that is a hard target, that I think is quite tricky, 
and and uh, some criticism is close, but no cigar. And that is Polituzumab Vidotin and Relapsed or Refractory, DLBCL, the paper by Lori Sen and colleagues that led to regulatory approval of Polituzumab Vidotin, a very costly monoclonal antibody against CD79B. You won't want to miss this discussion. Stay tuned. All right. I'm here to talk about polituzumab vidotin and relapse or refractory DLBCL. This was requested by a listener, and listeners get what they want on this podcast. So this was my take on polituzumab vidotin and relapse refractory DLBCL. Right off the bat, we need to know something about POLA. POLA is a CD79B antibody. It's an antibody that's tethered to a drug, MMAE, which is a potent microtubule inhibitor. And the lovely thing about these potent, targeted antibody drug conjugates is they sound targeted. They really sound like they hit that CD79B and kill just that cell. But what happens, of course, is when the first cell dies, it releases now liberated MMAE, which causes all the same fun toxicities as systemic vinca or vinca derivatives. It's really not that great when it comes to side effects. It doesn't look as targeted as it's branded. Well, anyway, let's get started here. I have prepared for you 10 points, which I think are quite interesting and will take us through this article. Number one, I'm sorry I have to do this to you. I have to do this over and over and over again until society heeds my call, and that is we thank the participating patients and their families, yada, yada, yada. Third-party assistance was provided by Rachel, somebody, of some company, funded by Hoffman LaRoche. Well, thank goodness. Medical writers to the rescue. And in this case, there's at least one sentence in the discussion that I think is there because of the medical writer. And I'm going to point it out to you because it's just the kind of crazy idea that only a medical writer would get. We have to do better, people. We cannot use medical writers. I disagree strongly with that. You can debate all you want about the empirical ramifications of this, but there is a simple rule that we apply to every student from the age of zero until all through their training, which is that you write papers, you write papers. You got to write it yourself. Can you imagine a wealthy college student turns in the philosophy paper and it says, we acknowledge them philosophical writer support of Dr. So-and-so. That would be crazy. They would instantly fail that project. In fact, that's called buying papers. I mean, it just doesn't make sense. We have to stop this. This is, this is really bad. All right. That's number one. Number two, what do they do in this paper? Of course, um, you need to know one thing. This is POLA BR versus BR and relapse with DLBCL not eligible for transplant. And I think right off the bat, we just have to draw attention to one fact, which is this is POLA in combination with BR. It's not POLA by itself. It's POLA BR versus BR. There's a chemotherapy backbone there, and they're going in the latter line of therapy. Now, let me tell you something. When you have a really, really potent drug with great single-agent activity, you don't tie it to two other old drugs, BR. You go in it in and of itself. You just shoot new drug versus whatever you want, and you know you can beat them. So the mere fact this is a combination trial, I think, says something. It tells you this drug is not a miracle. It's not a magical drug that has a very, very high single-agent response rate. In fact, the single-agent response rate in lymphoma is disappointing. Response rates in lymphoma are generally 20, 30, 40, 50% higher um, than uh, other tumor types. Uh, re response in DLBCL uh, is uh, fortunately higher than it is in pancreas cancer. So the bar for novel agents must be higher. And the single agent response uh, shown here uh, by POLA is frankly disappointing. And that's why it's not pursued as a single agent. And that should tell you something right off the bat. Okay. Now, who are they studying this in? They're studying this in in patients with DLBCL 
who are, quote, transplanting eligible and have completed at least one prior line of therapy. And in fact, roughly a third did one prior line, a third did two prior lines, and, and roughly a third did three or more prior lines of therapy. Um, so this is in the relapse refractory DLBCL setting. Uh, and the patients have to be thought transplant ineligible or unable to obtain um, the most potent regimens we have, like R-ICE, R-DHAP, and R-GDP. Uh, and that's why they're pairing it to BR, which is generally thought of as a weak backbone chemotherapy for DLBCL in the relapse setting. Um, I just want to note right off the bat, the trial excludes double and triple hit lymphomas. And that ironically might be a population in whom you'd want a non-transplant option because that's the most, um, uh, most unmet medical need. But they're excluded from this trial. So these are transplant ineligible patients. And in fact, 80% of them have not had a transplant. And they're not having a transplant on this study. Only 20% had failed a prior transplant. So the majority of them are being, quote, deemed transplant ineligible. And if you want a nice look at that, you can read a paper that Rachel Cook and I um, wrote in Nature Reviews Clinical Oncology on drugs uh, that are pursued in AML for patients who are, quote, not eligible for induction therapy. It's, uh, it's a slippery slope when it comes to what exactly counts as not transplant eligible. Here, one of the things that jumped out at me is that these patients are not transplant eligible, uh, and their ages are 33 to 86. I don't know about you, but um, I'm not very comfortable uh, taking a 35-year-old or a 33-year-old uh, who has relapsed uh, diffuse large piece of lymphoma and not doing everything I possibly can to get them to, to auto-transplant. Um, I think it would be a very, very high bar before I declare such a person transplant ineligible. The other thing about this is the ECOG performance status, 0 to 1. 80% of people on this study have a 0 to 1 ECOG performance status, and they don't separate 0 and 1. They're, this is another classic medical writer move. Separate 0, 1, and 2. You can't lump 0 and 1 together. You know, for all we know, this is 79% zero and 1% one. You know, it's, it's, it's almost intentionally misleading. Put it, give us the information properly. Um, and what I'd suspect you'd see here is that these are people with really good performance status. And if you have somebody who's 33 with a good performance status or 55 with a good performance status or 65 with a good performance status, um, it is really a stretch to say they're transplant ineligible. Get out of here. And so what I want to say is right off the bat, it is, to me, a bit super fishy that doctors aren't being more aggressive here in pursuing uh, transplant in more of these people. Point number three, statistical power. So this is a trial that has two parts to it, has a phase 1B2 expansion part, and then it has a phase 2 randomized part. And the phase 2 randomized part is generating the efficacy data for approval. So that's what we're going to look at. It's a randomized phase 2 trial of 80 people. And when people talk about POLA, they say, well, this is a drug that improves overall survival. So therefore, in the relapse setting, it is suitable for drug approval. And I want to draw your attention to that. It improves overall survival. Was this 80-person randomized control trial powered to detect a difference in overall survival? And if you consult the statistical methods, you'd find it, in fact, was not powered for that. It was powered to find a 25% improvement in the CR rate from 40 to 65%. So it was powered for modest improvement in CR in a non-curative setting, transplant ineligible setting. Um, and the observed CR rate was actually quite comparable. It was 22% and 50%. So the observed CR rate, although in both arms was less than what was anticipated, uh, the delta CR rate was comparable to what the statistical power had. So it seems like it was adequately powered to say something about that delta CR rate. Now, you got to remember, these are relapsed DLBCL patients for whom the doctor has said they're not transplant eligible. And they have a generally short median overall survival. I mean, even 
Yeah, in either arm of this study, we're talking about median overall survival is far less than a year. Or, uh, you know, these patients in general have a median overall survival of less than a year. So um, that is actually uh, uh, not terrific. And yet the authors here are only powering their study to detect a difference in CR rate, which is a surrogate endpoint, not really validated in this setting. It has no strong validation studies in this setting. Um, it's not a measure of what really matters. It's not a measure of quality of life. It's not a measure of overall survival. Um, it is a surrogate endpoint in a highly lethal malignancy uh, for which the doctor has said, um, I'm unable to give you the strongest chemotherapy we have and take you to auto, which is the highest chance of cure for whatever reason, even though some people are as young as 33 and even though 80% of people have ECOG 0 and 1, I'm not able to give you the really good stuff. I have to give you an inferior salvage regimen called BR, uh, which we do give, of course. Uh, you know, We give it to somebody, say, if they're 80 years old um, and say if they have an ECOG of Two, uh, you know, that's the ideal person for this kind of salvage regimen. Um, or if they've already progressed on some of these other regimens like Gemox or GDP, um, or if they failed an auto transplant in the past, um, that's somebody who you think about it. But only 20% of people have gotten auto in the past. So I think this is a population in whom lethality is high. Uh, and yet we're going to use a surrogate endpoint uh, that is unvalidated uh, for our primary endpoints. So I think that's worth, that's worth noting. Point number four. The POLA BR response rate observed in this study was 62%. And, you know, that was superior to the BR response rate in this study, but BR is probably the weakest comparator um, here. Uh, if you look at a bunch of other older studies, you'll see that our GDP has anything between a 50-60% response rate. Our GEMOX, talking about 60% response rate. Our DHAP, our ICE, even higher response rates. Um, so alternative chemotherapy regimens, older, um, simpler cytotoxic chemotherapy regimens have probably uh, in uh, apples and oranges comparison response rates that probably could uh, easily beat Pola BR if you want to do a randomized control trial powered for response rates, which I think is not very useful useful endpoint. Point number five, um, POLA, when tethered to MMAE, which is probably easily and quickly liberated, um, gives you anemia, thrombocytopenia, and of course, peripheral neuropathy, which is a debilitating and unfortunate consequence uh, of this drug. Um, of course, the medical writer does their best to downplay that and say that it's uh, easily treatable, it gets better with time, it's reversible, um, the sorts of things that, that one would say. But if you start talking about median survivals of less than a year and that the doctor's not going to be pursuing something that's uh, a curative intent autotransplant, um, then I think, um, you know, neuropathy is, uh, is, a, is a big pill to swallow. Uh, it's one thing if you have some neuropathy and you get cured. It's another thing if uh, you merely have a life prolongation. But does it have a life prolongation? Point number six. To our knowledge, this is the first ever RCT showing OS benefit. That's what the medical writer writes. Um, Wow, what an interesting statement. What an interesting statement. That's a statement written by somebody who um, I think is either trying to mislead you or doesn't have an understanding of statistics. And this other, then this writer goes on to say, uh, quote, modest sample size are potential limitations. Uh, something like the phase two nature of this trial and the modest sample size are potential limitations. I had a good chuckle. Um, this is, trial is not powered to find an OS benefit. It's certainly not powered to find the OS benefit that they saw. What does that mean? When you run small underpowered phase two trials and you do not power them to detect an OS benefit, when you do observe OS benefits, it is very, very likely that those are false positive benefits. The classic example 
is Lartruvo or Laratumumab. The phase two trial shows a whopping OS benefit. And what happened when you did a randomized phase three trial powered for OS? That benefit evaporated and the curves were superimposable. And here, the authors know that. They know that this trial was not designed to find an OS benefit. And in fact, you should not say Polar BR has an OS benefit over BR. You cannot say that. You don't know that. You can say our trial was not designed or suited to assess overall survival. And thus, overall survival results should be considered hypothesis generating. That's how some honest person would write this paper. They wouldn't say we found an OS benefit. And here they try to do a Cox regression analysis to adjust for known confounding variables uh, to make the case that the OS benefit is real, but that really doesn't get you that much further. Um, you ha have not measured or even know all the covariates that do determine survival in this relapse setting. You very likely have imbalance in those covariates due to a very, very small sample size. Um, covariates you don't know, and you can't adjust for what you don't know uh, is playing a role in OS. So what I want to say here is point six. This trial really doesn't show an OS benefit. And that really does matter because now we're talking about a relapse refractory setting where the doctor's saying, I can't give you RDHAP, I can't give you RIs, even though your ECOG is zero and even though you're 33 years old. And I'm going to run a randomized trial where the primary endpoint is a CR rate, which is a meaningless surrogate endpoint in that setting. So here the authors want to have their cake and eat it too. They want to say, we want to take a very vulnerable population uh, for whom life prolongation is really the only legitimate goal. We're not going to be able to get him to auto. We're not going to be able to get him to cure. Um, we're really just talking about a life prolongation. But we don't want to run a randomized trial power to detect that difference. We want to run a randomized trial power to detect difference a CR rate, which really doesn't make sense because you're not taking them to anything. You're not taking them to an auto. You're not taking them to a CAR-T. You're not taking them to any subsequent therapy. You're not taking them to transplant. Uh, so what do you care about CR? It's not important in and of itself. What you can directly measure is what you care about, which is OS. But yet they don't want to do that. Point number seven, OS trials. How much longer would it have taken? Now, this is a very interesting question. It is. If the company, which has basically infinite money for this question, because we're talking about Hoffman LaRoche, and Hoffman LaRoche, they've got the big bucks. They can do what they want. They, can, they snap their fingers and they can get the powered study they need. They are really good at running huge trials. And in fact, uh, they run many of them. I mean, this is Roche Genentech. I mean, they do these studies. Um, so they could have done what I think the right study would be, which is POLA plus chemotherapy backbone versus chemotherapy backbone. We're going to come to that. Um, powered for overall survival. But then somebody would say, well, that would delay things, wouldn't it? It would just take so much longer to do that. And what I did was I did some calculations. So I basically... I don't want to go through all the boring parts. I adjusted for the fact that there was a phase one portion of this, and I looked at the accrual rate over time, and I looked at the time it took to result the endpoints reported in this study, and based on the initial report date of, uh, of ASH, uh, where they presented the results, and I came to the conclusion that roughly, I'm guessing, it took him about 44 months to, from first patient accrual to the results of this study um, to knowing the results of this study took him about 44 months. And I'm just talking about the phase two portion of it, the, the efficacy portion of the study. I'm putting aside the phase one portion. It took him about 44 months in my, in my guesstimate uh, of how long. Now, 
if if you were pursuing this drug for, of course, frontline DLBCL, well, then waiting for overall survival would take a heck of a long time. But you're pursuing this in a highly lethal group of people, a group of people in whom you're saying, we can't take them to auto. We can't give them our ice. Um, we can only give them BR. Uh, and, and their median survival is not great on either arm of this study. Um, and so that's not going to take that much time. So I said, what would it take sample size to detect a difference in OS reliably? And what if you assume the exact same accrual rate of this study? I'm not even giving them like, you know, just assume that you're accruing patients at the exact same rate. And how long would it take to measure the endpoint of that study? And I came to the, the rough number, back of the envelope calculation, that it would be in 52 months, 52 months, 44 months, roughly, roughly the same. And, and I have a bit of additional empirical evidence that supports this hypothesis, which is a paper that Emerson Chen, who is now junior faculty at OHSU did and published in JAMA Internal Medicine, which is called Study Time Reduction from Surrogate Use in Oncology. And what Emerson finds is that although surrogates are associated with a modest reduction in trial time, um, that reduction is primarily in de novo metastatic conditions and not at all observed in the relapse refractory setting uh, where, where, where POLA is fitting in. So what I want to say is the authors of this study could have run the right trial measuring the right endpoint uh, in roughly the same amount of time and brought the drug to market in roughly the same amount of time by running an underpowered phase two trial with a likely spurious or unreliable OS benefit um, powered for CR rate in people who are quote unquote transplant ineligible, although their ECOG is quite good and they're often young. Uh, the authors are giving us information that is not very helpful um, and highly prone to bias in all these dimensions. It's highly prone um, to being a spurious find. Point number eight. Oh, this is the one. This is the one that got me. This is the one that I said, um, boy, you really have to have some courage to put this in. And only a medical writer, I think, can have, have this courage. Here's what they write. Quote, although this study examined polar BR as a standalone therapy, the high CR rates and prolonged disease control observed suggest it may pro provide an important bridge to further consolidative therapies, including stem cell transplant and CAR-T therapy. So what they're saying is that these people who are transplant ineligible, 80% have not had a transplant and could never get a transplant. Polar BR is so great that, heck, maybe you start thinking about taking them to stem cell transplant and CAR-T. But if they were really fit enough for each of those therapy, why on earth would you be giving them BR? You give them RICE and you take them to transplant or you give them CAR-T, you wouldn't need this regimen at all and this whole trial would be not applicable at all to someone in that situation. So you really have to have some massive, massive, staggering confidence to tell me that this is a great strategy to take people into remission prior to an autotransplant. Uh, you've purposely not tested it against any of the known comparators for such a setting where you'd probably uh, get obliterated because you'd probably have inferior um, outcomes, is my guess, uh, than just simple old RIs. I think RIs would probably do a better job um, and, and probably with less neuropathy. So... <clears throat> Point number nine, what is the right trial they should have done? Well, you know, I think because transplant eligibility is just so darn subjective, it's just too subjective. And because once you start creating a clinical trial, there are professional and perverse incentives for trialists to enroll, I think we have to separate these. And so the only trial that I think would be a fair trial would be to say, we're going to do POLA plus investigator choice chemotherapy backbone versus investigator choice chemotherapy backbone. The investigator has to pre-specify the backbone before they're told of whether or not they're randomized to POLA or placebo infusion. So the POLA is going to be blinded. So they're not going to know that. And they have to decide on their 
their backbone without knowing whether or not the patient gets polo. And then the trial should be big enough to be powered for all-cause mortality in a relapse refractory setting in patients who are not eligible for stem cell transplant. But there's no rule that says you have to follow through with that. And in fact, if some people have great response and their ECOG gets better, you can take them to transplant if you want. And that's all baked into the study. And you have to show me that polo has an OS benefit. That's a really simple trial. I suspect it wouldn't have taken a whole heck of a lot longer because um, this is a highly lethal setting. If indeed you are taking people for whom you really do lack confidence that they can get an auto, um, it is a highly lethal condition. It wouldn't have taken a whole heck of a lot longer and it would provide so much stronger an evidentiary claim that this novel drug that has never been approved for use in human beings that's very, very costly actually does what we think it does, which is the goal of all of this, which we cannot forget. It's not CR rates. It's not drug approval. It's bringing drugs to people that improve their survival or their quality of life. Bringing drugs to people that improve their survival or quality of life. I have to remind everyone, sometimes we forget. We think bringing a drug to market is the goal. We think having a JCO paper is the goal. We think uh, uh, being a trialist is the goal. Having a lot of Twitter followers is the goal. That's not the goal. It's doing things in a way that make the world a better place for people with cancer. Okay, that's the goal. And the right study to do is powered for OS difference. It's not the Lartruvo number two. It's not an underpowered phase two trial that leads an efficacy conclusion on OS that it may be, uh, may be totally false positive, totally unreliable. Uh, and think about all the underpowered phase two trials for which the authors don't uh, put a figure of the OS survival curve because they don't want you to know that because it might not go the direction they want you to go. So there's a huge like potential selection bias of the ones in which we see the OS. Um, and that's likely what's going on here. Part number 10. This is the big part. The confirmatory study will prove nothing. This is why the US FDA is just failing, failing, failing to do what's right for cancer patients. What's the confirmatory study to this trial? What should the confirmatory study be? The confirmatory study should be, of course, the study I describe. If you do want to bring it to market based on a CR rate in an underpowered phase two, at least prove that in the relapse refractory setting, there is in fact an OS benefit in the trial that I have outlined, which is POLA investigator choice versus investigator choice, double blind study, and you have to pre-specify investigator choice before you find out about randomization, which you don't really find out, but before they even do that step, just to doubly ensure that you don't know it. Um, uh, and, and people are allowed to use Gemox and RDHAP and, uh, and, and RICE and RGDP, which is one that I really like because it's an outpatient regimen. Um, and I know my friends across the pond may disagree. They may have their own favorite. But I think nobody's favorite is BR. I mean, BR is really the thing we reach for last. I mean, that's the honest truth of it um, because we think it's the least effective of all the regiments. Um, anyway, so that should be the confirmatory study to prove there is, in fact, a survival or health-related quality of life in this population, knowing that this population is extremely subjective and um, that in a broader multi-center phase three study, um, there may be less risk of bias of terms of investigator overcalling ineligibility uh, because they may have different incentives. Okay, so so that's that's what the right study. But what is the confirmatory study that the FDA has put in the drug letter? And the answer is RCHP plus POLA versus RCHOP in the frontline setting. That study is going to take a few years to come back. That study is probably going to have the primary endpoint of EFS, which is not going to be a measure of what we really care about. And that study, if it's negative, honestly, the FDA, I doubt, will pull POLA from the market. Because even if, even if POLA in the frontline setting is unable to beat CHOP, what does that tell you about POLA in the relapse refractory setting when given with the backbone of um, BR? It tells you nothing. So I think that study is neither here nor there. It has nothing to do with this approval. It's really an irrelevant confirmatory study. In fact, it's really a study that 
you know, can only be used to allow this drug to claim even more market share and that I doubt the company will pay any penalty if that study fails. So it's not a confirmatory study. It should be called a, uh, if you win, you win more market share. And if you lose, we're probably just going to ignore the result, which is really what the FDA does with confirmatory studies. They ignore the result. And that's not just my opinion. That's the opinion of two government accountability office reports, the opinion of Chadi Nabhan and colleagues in a JAM Oncology paper, the opinion of Steve Wolishin and colleagues in a New England Journal of Medicine paper. That's the opinion of a lot of people who have looked at the data. So overall conclusions. Um, should they have done this study? No. I mean, it's silly. Uh, CR rates, I mean, if we're really talking about people who are truly deemed transplant ineligible, then I could care less what the CR rate is. I mean, I care about that insofar as it allows me to get somebody to an auto. But if you're telling me I really am not going to give these people auto, then I don't care about that. I really just care about OS and health-related quality of life. And there's, not, and there's nothing wrong with picking that population and doing that study and measuring that and powering the study to do that. But you can't power to detect a CR rate and just report the OS benefit if you happen to get lucky by the grace of God. And when you run underpowered phase two trials, you certainly run the risk of false negatives, but you also run the risk of false positives. And the paper that makes that case is Power Failure um, by John Unides and colleagues. And it's just a simple statistical fact. Um, uh, and and so, so this trial is not really powered for the OS difference, so you should delete that from your brain. It did not prove an OS difference. It f- happened to find a difference that is hypothesis generating, but I would not hang my hat on that difference. What you can hang your hat on is that Polar BR has a higher CR rate than BR. You can hang your hat on that. That was adequately powered and proven in this study. But is that good enough to change your practice? And the answer is no, because that's not a good enough metric. And... Uh, It's not good enough for approval. It's not good enough for patients. And the right study, honestly, would not have taken much more. Maybe four, five, six more months is my best estimate. Um, And the right study would have given us actually useful answers. And when you're talking about a drug that costs so much, there's no reason not to do the right study. But now they will never do the right study because they've been excused from the right study. They're allowing their frontline registration study to serve as as a confirmatory study. So this is all ludicrous. So POLA... I would say, um, no. I would say you have so many other options you can use. You have no credible evidence that Pola BR is better than RGDP, RICE, RDHAP in terms of overall survival. Um, and I think you got to ask the question if these people are truly transplant ineligible when you see that the age range goes down to 33, that only 20% have had prior transplant, and that the ECOG is so overwhelmingly zero and one. Uh, so those are all my central criticisms. Um, the chutzpah of the, um, the, the writer to say uh, that Polar BR has such a good CR rate, you might think about a CAR-T and an auto, uh, is really galling to me when this trial goes out of its way uh, to take very fit people and somehow say they're not uh, fit for an auto or a CAR-T. Uh, but sure, we can use Polar and we can use Polar to get them there, uh, if you say so. I mean, you're really, you're really, you're really trying to have it all there, huh? Um, so Roche Genentech didn't do the right study. But the real failure is not Roche Genentech. Roche Genentech is the tiger. They're the tiger in the zoo. Let me tell you a little story. I um, was going to give a lecture, and before I gave the lecture, I literally saw on my phone that a tiger in a zoo attacked a woman. And I thought to myself, that's not right. Shame on that tiger. But then I read that the woman had stepped over the barricade that protected the tiger enclosure to take a selfie with the tiger. And that is how I feel is going on in oncology. 
It's not the industry's fault, the tiger in the cage. It's that we, society, and our agent, the FDA, is stepping over the barrier into the tiger cage to get a better selfie so that we can be proud of ourselves, pat ourselves on the back, and say we've approved more drugs than ever before, which is what the FDA loves to say, so that we can say that we're not stifling innovation, we're shepherding drugs to market, so that the administration can say we're a pro-business administration and we have let many promising regulatory compounds come to market, so that the patient groups who are funded by the industry can say that we are advocating for more drugs for you, uh, we are stepping over the enclosure, we're getting in the cage, and we are letting the tiger have its way with us. And in this case, the tiger is uh, giving us a drug that improves a surrogate that has nothing to do with anything uh, in a population that may or may not really be transplant ineligible against a control arm that's the weakest thing out there uh, and that they, by the grace of God, happen to find an OS difference that they're not powered or designed or suited to find. Uh, and they're going to trumpet that. They're going to blow up that image and they're going to show it to every doctor uh, who's not probably aware of how power failure gives you false positive results, which I don't think many doctors are. Uh, and why? Because they're too busy memorizing that stupid Krebs cycle in their medical education and no one is in fact teaching them things that would be useful to protect themselves against uh, misinformation in an age where uh, everyone makes hand over fist money from misinformation. And the medical writer has to rub my nose in it by saying that now you can give pull a, pull a PR and take a patient to auto. Oh my God. So to my friends across the pond who asked me to review this paper, I give it two thumbs down, two thumbs way down. Polar BR is a regimen that has slipped through the cracks. It has mauled, it has mauled me, uh, who is, in fact, beyond the enclosure because my colleagues at the FDA threw me over the enclosure and is not protecting me from this tiger. And so I blame, I blame, I blame, I blame everybody but the company um, who, is, who is just a simple tiger uh, trying, to, trying to do the best for, for the tiger self. Um, and on that positive note, We'll turn to question of the week with Dr. Emerson Chen. I'm back in plenary session HQ with Dr. Emerson Chen. Emerson is an assistant professor here at the Oregon Health and Science University. He's a practicing GI oncologist with an expertise in health services research. And he's back for question of the week, oncology edition. Emerson, it's good to see you. Yeah, it's good to see you. We're back in the new HQ, the new office where we're recording plenary session free from those little noise-canceling speakers in the ceiling. So we will not get any background noise here. Yeah, it's very serene down here. We have a gorgeous view of Mount Hood. It's visible now, snow-capped, about 25 miles away from Oregon Health and Science University. It's very serene and peaceful here. We can get some real good recording done. Yeah. So... What do you got for us this week? You got a question of the week, and it's supposed to be a good one. All right. So this is a 58-year-old woman, otherwise healthy, with unremarkable family history, who was diagnosed with moderate differentiated adenocarcinoma of the transverse colon on a colonoscopy. She had an uncomplicated uh, colon resection one month ago and is here to discuss adjuvant chemotherapy. Mm. Her preoperative CT scans did not show any metastatic disease. Her surgical pathology showed that all the margins were negative, and it's a T2N1 uh, tumor. Mm. What adjuvant chemotherapy would you recommend? A, six months of 5-FU leucovorin. B, six months of capecitabine and oxaliplatin, or Kpox. C, three months of capecitabine plus oxaliplatin, Kpox. 
um, D, six months of uh, five of you lucivore and oxalipine or fofox plus bevacizumab. Um, e, three months of fofox. Oh, fascinating case. Okay, a 58-year-old female, moderately differentiated adenocarcinoma, T2N1 disease, which would put her at stage three. And she's coming in for you for an adjuvant therapy discussion, and you have given us, was that four or five options? Uh, five options. Five options for mm-hmm. what we could treat her with. All right, well, there's some information that you've withheld from us from this question of the week. For instance, how many lymph nodes were excised on that, on that uh, colectomy? Uh, I made it easier for you. And so let's say there's uh, three lymph nodes um, were positive and um, there were 15 lymph nodes in the surgical specimen. That's a good point. Okay, so, so why don't you tell the listeners how many lymph nodes must be in the surgical specimen for it to be considered an adequate uh, colonic resection and, and, and lymph node dissection? So in colon cancer, it's at least 12. Mm-hmm. And this is all based on what? Retrospective data that suggests for people in whom fewer lymph nodes were resected, they were higher recurrence rates? Is that where the data comes from? Uh, this arbitrary number comes from? Correct. I think something like that. Okay, so let's say she had an adequate resection is what you're saying, and she has three lymph nodes positive, uh, all local, which would put her in N1 disease. So she's T2N1, stage three. No high-risk features that we know of, that you're giving us. Correct. So I think there are a few things to note. One, does this patient benefit from adjuvant chemotherapy at all? And I guess I'd say there's a number of clinical trials that support the use of adjuvant chemotherapy, particularly in stage three colon cancer. Um, There are older studies that look at the role of 5-FU, that have validated 5-FU in stage three. And there's the Mosaic trial, which looks at the addition of oxaliplatin in patients who were mostly stage three, but there's some stage two patients in there as well. And I think the Mosaic trial suggests that there was no additional benefit from the use of oxaliplatin in stage two. But in stage three, we think of it in terms of sort of a 5 percentage point three-year DFS improvement for the addition of oxaliplatin. So off the bat, you're thinking of a fluoropyrimidine um, paired with an oxaliplatin sort of as your backbone for for adjuvant chemotherapy. Um, I think the next thing that you need to think about is, is there a role for targeted therapy in the adjuvant setting? And I would say that one of your answers had the addition of Avastin. We have a randomized phase three trial that looks at the addition of Avastin in the adjuvant setting in colon cancer, and it's stone-cold negative, just as the adjuvant trial of irinotecan and cetuximab. And what do we learn from this? I think we learn that uh, even if a drug is active in the metastatic setting, it's not necessarily uh, the kind of drug that eliminates microscopic disease, and it is not necessarily suited for the adjuvant setting. And so you really do need phase three trials to know what drugs work in the adjuvant setting, and those drugs have all failed. So there's no role for Advastin, there's no role for Cetuximab, there's no role for Irinotecan in the adjuvant setting. Then, number three, the number of cycles you have to give. And I think here you're going to hang your hat on a retrospective meta-analysis uh, that was heavily discussed at ASCO a couple years ago called IDEA. I think what they found in the IDEA study was that three cycles of full fox was not non-inferior to six cycles of full fox, but three cycles of Zelota oxaliplatin was non-inferior to six cycles of full fox. And the people in whom you would think about three cycles of Zelota oxaliplatin would be people who really don't have any terribly high-risk adverse features that make you super worried like this woman. Uh, so I guess... 
the only acceptable answer that you have given would be the third option, three cycles of zolotoxaliplatin. What do you think? Yeah, so according to the, um, the pooled analysis in the New England Journal paper in 2018, um, and, it, and it does include over 12,000 patients mm-hmm. um, from all over the world, um, and it is true that the ones in North America, everyone got full fox, mm-hmm. and so a lot, a lot of this data is more based on the other trials and outside of North America. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there is some limitations, but the three months um, is pretty close to six months in the overall population, and certainly in the subgroup um, with low risk disease, um, with N one disease, and T3 or less, mm-hmm. um, they, uh, it seems definitely that the three months, especially in the K-pox group, is non-inferior to six months. So. so you would be comfortable, this woman's in your clinic, you'd be perfectly comfortable giving her three months of Zalota with oxaliplatin. Yeah, and there were, uh, there were certainly other subsequent um, presentation of the data that showed that people were less likely to get um, peripheral neuropathy by doing three months of therapy. And, and overall, um, patients are um, going to the infusion suite um, for half the amount of time. And so that is definitely saving healthcare costs as well. Yeah, and, and the inconvenience, because nobody wants to get oxaliplatin you don't need, especially in the adjuvant setting, where you've been fully excised of tumor and you're just trying to lower your rate of recurrence. I guess I would say the only other thing that makes me think about is whether or not evidence should come with an expiration date. This was a paper that Adam Sifu, uh, Palmer Green, and I worked on when in the context of aspirin um, for primary prevention of cardiovascular disease. And we all know in the last couple of years, there have been a number of negative phase three trials of aspirin showing that it's net effect of aspirin is probably deleterious, and we probably are way over-prescribing aspirin for primary prevention. And this flies in the face of earlier randomized controlled trials, maybe a couple decades ago, that showed that actually aspirin probably had a net beneficial effect, although very modest and did come with some consequences of bleeding. And so the question we posed here is, um, is it possible both things were true, that the people who enrolled in the earlier studies who tended to be thinner because the average BMI has gone up in this country, who tended to be smokers uh, because smoking has gone down in this country, um, that that group of people actually might have had a net benefit, but the group of people who we think about in modern world who may be older, more likely to be diabetic or pre-diabetic, have higher weights, um, and less likely to be smokers, um, and less likely to have their lipids controlled, um, that this group of people actually don't benefit. And so the hypothesis is, maybe evidence should have an expiration date, just like that gallon of milk in your fridge, and that after some period of time, if there are secular changes in a population or changes in medical therapy, we should reassess what we think we know. And the reason I bring this up in this context is colon cancer. Over time, we have gotten better at dissecting more lymph nodes. We've gotten better at doing surgeries. We've gotten better at imaging. So we're a whole lot better at finding those quote unquote stage three patients who in 1998 were stage three, but in 2019 have occult pulmonary metastases and actually would be maybe eligible for um, metastasectomy along with primary colonic resection. So we're, we're staging people differently. And because of that, um, 
that perhaps some of what we thought the benefit of adjuvant therapy ha- was has been eroded. And and this isn't just my idea. I think there's a JCO comments and controversy that came out about six, seven years ago, if I recall, that kind of made this argument that we need to reassess the adjuvant therapy trials, which are old and based on outdated staging, based on, in some cases, maybe inadequate surgery, and reassess it for the modern age. And, and if you did that, I think... If anything, it would be more likely to favor the three months of Zolodox, Platin, maybe even more likely to favor the three months of Folfox. Um, and maybe there's some people in whom we are overprescribing adjuvant therapy. What do you think about that, Emerson Chen? I think repeating another randomized controlled trial, testing the same question that was done mm-hmm. um, 10, 30 15, years ago. For, All right, 15 years ago. 15 years ago. For Mosaic. Uh, for Mosaic study. Um, it would... It would take a lot of effort and cost to do that. I think there may be ways through observational study to um, to see if the adjuvant chemotherapy is still supported. Uh, I'm, I'm sure there are always patients that um, decline chemotherapy for whichever reason or have comorbidities that may be of interest where they are high risk for chemotherapy and don't go through chemotherapy. I see. So you want a confounded by indication study. Because <laughs> that'll be all confounding factors. You have to overcome that. It'll be tricky. Right. But, but, but I do, I, yeah. I guess I make you make a fair point, though. Here's what I, I would argue uh, to build off what you were saying, which is that you could look observationally to just look at the rates of recurrence and then watch those decline. And, and at least even if you postulate the same relative benefits, the absolute benefits might be a little bit smaller now. So that might be an intermediate step. But you're right. These colon cancer doctors are not going to be eager to randomize patients to my study called Evidence with an Expiration Date. Just as a recent paper I was reading looked at whether or not patients with colon cancer and isolated pulmonary mats should be subject to metastasectomy by Tom Treasure and colleagues. It was a randomized controlled trial comparing metastasectomy against observation, which is exactly the kind of study that we've never had and we would love to have. But after 65 people were enrolled in that study, the study failed to enroll patients and had a diminishing accrual rate and was halted for futility. And that just goes to show you that you GI oncologists, you think you know the answer and you won't randomize patients. Isn't that fair to say? Well, I think if you ask, there are also patients, I think, that if they know that a therapy is already being widely used in clinical practice um, and they're being randomized to something that's less than that. Yeah, um, they're not happy. Then it, they're unlikely to enroll the patient. So it might not be me, um, but I think a lot of patients want to try new therapies and not to kind of prove um, an old therapy that it might not be that effective. They're less interested in enrolling in those studies. That's fair to say. I think there's a recent paper that showed that if there's drug A for the condition and there's drug B for the condition and doctors prescribe A or B based on no rhyme or reason, patients would be happy to get either that doctor gives A or the doctor gives B. But if you ask that exact same person if they're willing to be randomized to A or B, they are somehow not happy. And I think the lesson there is that we have a huge public misunderstanding of randomization and what it does and what it doesn't do. And that public misunderstanding extends even to physicians. And that is my takeaway lesson. But hopefully someday we overcome that and are able to get the good studies. Okay, one more question for you. Who is the patient? What are the clinical characteristics of the patient in whom you're definitely going to give six months of Folfox or six months of uh, Zolodox, Aliplatin to? 
Yeah. So even though the NCCN guidelines has made um, some recommendations about using K-pox in the North American population with um, some dose adjustment um, in in capecitabine, uh, there's still usually uh, more anticipated side effects with the K-pox um, versus the regular Fulfox that we've been um, accustomed to in North America. Um, and so I always discuss both options with the patient, um, whether if they're eligible for three months of K-pox, um, um, to discuss the increased risk of side effects like hand, foot, and diarrhea, um, and then also still offer six months of full fox if they prefer to be on a regimen that may be um, less of those side effects, I see. Um, but then finishing at a later time. But what if they're T4N2? So typically for higher risk patients who are not eligible for the three months, I always do six months of full fox um, rather than doing a K-pox regimen. Unless, uh, unless, of course, there is a reason why um, like they couldn't have a port or they don't want to have a port and um, they prefer an oral regimen. Are there any stage two patients whom you give adjuvant to? Do you test for CDX2? I do not test for CDX2. Mm-hmm. Um, there are... Other um, analyses are being um, presented from the idea mm-hmm. um, pool analysis, and um, some of those have been um, they were presented at ASCO, but not available as a publication yet. Mm-hmm. And it seems that um, because some of the some of the trials in the pooled analysis did include stage two, mm-hmm. um, and I think there's also. Um, there's also interest in looking at the ctDNA as a marker for people mm-hmm. who are at risk mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. recurrence after um, surgery and trying to determine whether those maybe those people should get adjuvant therapy. And so I think for stage two, there's still a lot of unclear um, data about what to do. Mm-hmm. But when you go to clinic later today, you're, you're not going to do prescribed adjuvant stage two for the time being until you're proven until it's proven otherwise. I think for high risk, um, it's still worth a discussion. L- LVI, perforation, those kind uh, of patients? For T4, uh-huh. um, perforation, obstruction, those I think are the ones I would concentrate on. I think mm-hmm. some also argue the poorly differentiated, mm-hmm. My, mm-hmm. it's still worth a discussion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I would make sure they're MSI stable. Mm-hmm. Uh, That's a good point. That's a good point. Okay, I agree with you, MSI, but I guess I, I'm more of a, a of the view I, I wouldn't even offer it even in those high-risk situations because that's all very old data, in my opinion. But if we were in tumor board, it would be a heated discussion, and if there are a lot of GI oncologists, there'd be more people on your side. But if I were in the room, it would be, it would be a war. Yeah, I think <laughs> the other thing to stage two, it's, it's unclear whether should you do six months of um, five of you or capecitabine? Yeah. Or should you do three months of K-pox? Okay. I don't really know. If you question. were to treat, and yeah. and I guess some of us say don't treat at all. But okay, but certainly if you're MSI, unstable, MSI high, don't treat. Agree there? Uh, correct. Okay, boom. All right, on that positive note, we will turn to our next segment. Dr. Chen, thank you so much for coming on Question of the Week. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm back in plenary session HQ, joined via Skype by Dr. Ali Kaki. Dr. Kaki is a third-year Hemonc Fellow at the University of Washington Fred Hutch Cancer Center. 
with a new president, I hear, just this week. He completed medical school at the University of California, San Diego, and residency at UCSF, where I'm headed. And he is here to discuss a new paper that came out in JNCCN, entitled Clinical Risk During the Evaluation of Genomic Risk for Hormone-Sensitive Breast Cancer, Ignoring Valuable Data. And this is a paper we work together on, which is about Taylor RX and Oncotype DX. And we're going to talk about whether or not genomic risk adds to clinical risk. So, Ali, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Hi, Vinay. Thanks for having me. So, how are things up there in Seattle? Well, uh, it's going to snow next week, so I'm looking forward to that. Oh, they always say that, Ali. They always say it's going to snow, and then what? Half the time it doesn't, right? Yeah, but we had a snowmageddon last year, so I'm not looking forward to this. I see. That's no good. And you got a new president of the Fred Hutch now, don't you? Yes, yeah. uh, Gary Gillan is on their way out, and uh, Tom Lynch is the new person in charge. New person, straight from BMS to the helm of Fred Hutch. Uh, and Dr. Gillen, prior to this, was at Merck. So it's uh, Fred Hutch is, uh, is definitely uh, got a partnership, close ties with, with the industry. Well, it's good to have you on to talk about this important commentary. So uh, where should we begin? Why don't you, uh, why don't you kick it off and, and tell us, uh, you know, what did, uh, what did we try to talk about in this and what were we trying to tackle? Sure. Um... So, you know, over the last few years, there's been multiple predictive assays that have been sort of adopted into clinical practice mm-hmm. uh, to help guide um, the decision of whether to treat uh, women with early stage hormone sensitive breast cancer with chemotherapy or not in the adjuvant setting, so mm-hmm. postoperatively. Um, and, you know, and before these sort of molecular tools, um, clinical tools were used to help make, make that decision. So there was online calculators like Adjuvant Online and Predict Plus that were used for this purpose. Um, but but um, you know, there's always excitement to try to get to the molecular biology of, of cancer. And so there's been use of um, Oncotype DX as well as Mammaprint as, as two such tools um, that help um, evaluate the, the tumor at the time of resection and, and see if there's uh, high-risk features that would uh, suggest a benefit uh, with chemotherapy. I see. So I guess what you're getting at here is sort of a... There's this broad principle in early stage breast cancer, which is that even though we're going to cut out the tumor and even though um, we're going to sample the lymph nodes, um, uh, there's a fraction of women whom the cancer is going to recur. And we know that giving chemotherapy might lower uh, the fraction of women in whom cancer will recur. It might improve the curative fraction or improve survival. Um, but the benefit of chemotherapy uh, is sort of proportionate to the risk of recurrence. Uh, the more likely the cancer is to come back, the more the uh, absolute benefit of chemotherapy is, and the less likely, the less. And at some point, if cancer is uh, less likely to recur, um, maybe the, the harms of chemotherapy uh, offset any gain. Um, so this is kind of the, the unique puzzle we're in, that we have a treatment, it has real risk, but maybe in group people in whom the disease has a higher risk, um, there will be some benefit. Um, and of course, uh, what are the factors that let you determine the risk is the key question. And I guess I'd say, historically, we've looked at lots of things, right? So what are some of the clinical risk factors that we've historically looked at? Yeah, so t- you know, the clinical risk factors that we historically looked at were things like the patient's age, uh, the size of the tumor, the grade, um, the hormone status, obviously, and then mm. uh, the presence of, of lymph nodes that were involved 
uh, that were at the time of resection. I see. Um, but there's a new kid on the block, and that's these tests. And these tests um, look at either gene expression profiling, or they look at uh, uh, no. They're actually they're all gene expression profiling, aren't they? That yeah. There's there's some additional ones that neither of these two that look at RT PCR actually. Or I think maybe Oncotype DX RT PCR. Um, yeah, it's RT PCR, but it looks at quantifying gene expression. So I guess it's gene expression. Yeah. Yeah. It's not looking at like actually tumor mutations, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah that makes sense. Okay. Okay. All right. So back to this. So I, I was just saying that it's all gene expression. Yeah, they're all gene expression based. And it's now back to you. Yeah, that's correct. Um, so I, you know, both both Oncotype DX and, and Mammoprint are using or looking at gene expression with different technology. Mm-hmm. And so I guess this is a philosophical question, which is, um, you know, you have a lot of things that provide you some sense of risk. And in fact, um, those clinical risk factors, they're not just sort of treated individually. They've been codified into sort of online calculators, right? There's some calculators that were very popular maybe about a decade ago. Yeah. So Adjuvant Online and Predict Plus are two of the more popular calculators. I think one of them is uh, the one from from the UK that was widely used um, and and was sort of the standard of care uh, for many people before before these tools came on the block. I see. And, um, and now there's a new tool. So I guess the question is, um, we like new tools, we want to use new tools, but what should the standard be to bring a new tool on the market? One hypothesis is you take all these women with early stage breast cancer and uh, you use the new tool and then you say high risk people are going to get treated, low risk people are not going to get treated, and people intermediate risk are going to get randomized. Um, and, and that's, in fact, really kind of what they did uh, to validate Oncotype DX. Um, an alternative way they might have validated it is to say, in one arm of the study, you're going to be allowed to use all of the clinical tools currently at your disposal. And in the other arm of the study, you're going to allow to use all those clinical tools plus Oncotype DX on top of it. And then the question is, does our uh, outcome similar with less chemotherapy given uh, or are patients more satisfied with decision-making, right? So these are two kind of hypothetical tests. They went with one test strategy, uh, but we could have done it a different way. Is that fair to say? Yeah, that's exactly right. So I think that, you know, the way that the TaylorX study was done is that all women underwent Doncotype DX, and they used that primarily to guide the decision of chemotherapy or not mm-hmm. um, in that intermediate risk category. And, and the trial basically was randomizing for those intermediate risk score patients to chemotherapy or not. Um, again, the low risk people not getting chemotherapy and the high risk people getting it. Um, but the, the, uh, another way to do this and what we argue in our paper is um, is probably the more appropriate way would be to um, randomize whether or not there's utility of this tool. Mm-hmm. Now, why are these, uh, like, why is that a different question? Like, why does that matter? Because if it, it's not clear that this tool is adding more than what we already know from our clinical markers. And so um, if it's not, then basically we're, we're just doing additional things because it's the new shiny tool on the, mar- on, on the block um, without necessarily improving outcomes, but increasing the cost of, of care. Hmm, interesting. So I guess it's like, uh, you know, I'm trying to think of an analogy here. And I guess I would say that like these days you can buy a car that has a lot of this like uh, navigational technology, like a Tesla. Uh, and to some degree, it can kind of drive itself, right? Um, but 
um, I guess it still has a windshield. You can still look out. Uh, but one way you could have made the car was to black out the window entirely so that it drives itself and you don't get to see what's going on, right? You don't get to take over. Um, and similarly, uh, you know, the question that faces these uh, novel technologies, I think, is to show that they provide benefit beyond being able to look out, uh, not in lieu of looking out. And I think that's sort of the fundamental question here. Now, yeah, and the thing, yeah, the, sorry, the one thing I'd say, the, the thing that makes this different than the car example is yes. that in the car example, the person who's purchasing that car has that choice, right? Whereas here, we as doctors are recommending this for all patients, and there, one, there's an asymmetry of information that's important, and mm -hmm. two, um, the, the cost is going to the healthcare system more broadly, uh, maybe some point. to the patients, but some to, to the rest of us as well, which is also problematic. That's a good point. You know, recently I saw um, Venk Morthy, who's a cardiologist at Michigan, and he was talking about nothing at all that has to do with this topic. He was talking about polygenic risk score to predict BMI. And he built this model where he was like, well, if you want to know someone's future BMI, uh, what are some of the factors you could take into account? And he has a number of clinical factors you could easily measure in the clinic, uh, one of which is the person's current BMI. It's probably a predictor for future BMI. Uh, or you can throw away all that information and use the polygenic risk score. And I think what he shows in this paper is that if you use all of the easy, simple to measure things in the clinic, the incremental predictive value of knowing someone's polygene score is infinitesimally small. It's very, very small, right? And I guess um, uh, the, the worry here uh, with Oncotype DX is that that same thing might be true, that if you really do use all the clinical features, such as the age of the patient, the size of the tumor, um, even the grade of the tumor, and sometimes, you know, we used to use KI-67 by immunohistochemistry, which has a huge concordance with the, uh, the recurrence score. Why don't we talk about that for a second? So, um, you know, what, what is a KI-67 and what's a recurrence score and what does it mean that they are really so concordant? Yeah, so the KI-67 um, is an uh, immun immunohistochemistry tool that's used to sort of measure the cells that are um, replicating. And so it's a, it's a marker of, of high replication or sort of a higher grade tumor. Um, and the, the recurrence score is, is basically, you know, again, using microwave or sort of gene expression mm -hmm. um, to sort of evaluate um, a pretty similar sort of thing, sort of, sort of high-risk features of, mm -hmm. of, of, of the greater the replication rate of the cancer. Mm -hmm. And what does it mean that they're, they, that they're so concordant? You, you write in the paper that they're greater than 95% concordant. Yeah, so there's, there's been multiple different um, pathologic tools that have been developed to sort of predict the recurrence score, which then calls into question again whether there's any utility to the re recurrence score or can we just use these sort of standard of care um, pathologic features that we are already doing um, to sort of get the, get to the same information. Yeah, I think that's well put. Um, you're absolutely right that, you know, you already have some things you can measure simply and easily and cheaply because an IHC only costs usually a few hundred bucks, but the recurrence score is usually a few thousand bucks. And so the question is like, what is it telling you that you don't already know? Um, and we already see a number of ways in which people have kind of made carve-outs out of Taylor RX, right? So some people look at Taylor RX and they say, well, if a woman is very young, uh, then they're still inclined to give chemotherapy even at low recurrent scores. Isn't that right? Uh, they look at the sort of the subgroup analysis. But what they're doing is they're adding in clinical information on the back end of a, of a, of a strategy that was meant to be agnostic for clinical information, um, showing that clinical information is often useful. 
Exactly right. So, so you know, they're, they're, they're using that sort of the patient's age and they'll come up with some, you know, biological possibility, some hy- hypothesis of, of why this clinical information is needed on top of the, the risk recurrence score to help guide their therapy. But again, it calls into question how helpful is the recurrence score if that's needed. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Now, you also talk about MindAC in this paper, and you refer to a subgroup analysis, well, actually maybe a pre-planned analysis, but still nevertheless a group, a subgroup analysis of MindAC, where they looked at high clinical, so people in whom the old-fashioned way would have predicted that they should get chemotherapy, but low genomic risk, sort of this discordant group. And what they found was that giving chemotherapy to that group was associated with improved DFS, 93.3% versus 90.3%. But um, you write, quote, uh, um, that there was a small difference that was, quote, unlikely to translate into an overall survival benefit. So is it fair to say that there are some doctors out there who would omit chemotherapy for high clinical but low genomic risk patients? Yeah, I think that there are some patients, some doctors out there who would sort of omit chemotherapy um, for high clinical risk, low genomic risk patients. And um, you have to wonder w- whether that's the right thing to do here because, you know, an a- absolute benefit of 3% is is still um, pretty notable. And, and there's other medications that actually have been approved even for breast cancer with, with that level of, 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 of benefit. So the question is, you know, this is not this is a difference that's um, in, enough to avoid chemotherapy in one setting, but it's enough to approve new medications in a different setting. Um, so you, it sort of calls into question the entire um, paradigm here a little bit. Yeah, I think that's the nail on the head, which is that what would you say if you found a doctor routinely omitting chemotherapy for high clinical low genomic risk uh, based on that MIND Act, saying that that 93.3 versus 90.3 was, uh, you know, uh, negligible and worth, you know, forgoing. And that same doctor on the next patient was adding in neratinib, which has a 1% to 2% IDFS benefit at 2 to 5 years. So that same doctor is adding a toxic $100,000 plus drug based on a smaller DFS benefit than the benefit that they're letting go uh, and saying that it's okay to omit chemotherapy. You're right. And if you get to, and if you get yeah. to pertuzumab, it's even, it's even more egregious. It's even more egregious, <laughs> that quote-unquote positive confirmatory study. So I yeah. think like what these highlight is that there is sort of, um, I don't know, I, I mean, I would say the, the polite word is it's inconsistent behavior, that it's very likely to be the case that the same doctor, maybe even unbeknownst to himself or herself, that same doctor is making decisions on one day, Monday, they're not giving chemotherapy and letting a 3% DFS go away. On Tuesday, they are giving a toxic cancer drug uh, and and accepting a 1.5% DFS benefit. So that same doctor might be making irrational or inconsistent decisions if you look at their practice over time. It's almost, I mean, I'm pretty confident that's got to be occurring. Uh, But, you know, it would take somebody with your health services savviness to prove that that's the case. I, I, I agree. I think that there's some def, definitely inconsistent logic there. I, I do want to give a little bit of credit yes. to MindAC because I think that the trial was a bit better designed than the Taylor X study. Yes. Go um, and, and so specifically, you know, uh, the Taylor X study basically uh, had the recurrence score that broke into three buckets, the low, low risk who got endocrine therapy alone, the high risk who got chemotherapy alone, and the intermediate risk um, who they randomized to chemotherapy or not. In the MindX study, they at least appropriately measured, and there's no consideration of clinical risk at all in the Taylor X study. Mm-hmm. Um, in the MindX study, they sort of looked at clinical risk and genomic risk, and they actually had four buckets. They had high clinical risk, high genomic risk, mm-hmm. low clinical risk, low genomic risk. Mm-hmm. In, the, in the high and high, they got chemotherapy. In the low and low, 
they got endocrine therapy. Mm-hmm. And that, in that discordant pairs, the high-low or the low-high, so high clinical, low genomic, or vice versa, are the ones who um, were randomized to chemotherapy or not. And that's mm-hmm. sort of where we're, we're seeing this, 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 this finding of the 3% absolute risk difference for the high clinical risk, low genomic risk that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. But, but the thing that I like about how they did this is that um, you know, here they're actually looking at sort of both the clinical risk and the genomic risk and seeing if they, it's, it's more appropriately sort of asking, is there additional information gathered from the use of both of them together? Mm, that is interesting. I, I, I see what you're saying. You're saying that at least in Mind Act, um, they gave themselves a bigger challenge, which was we're going to go after the discordant pairs and ask whether or not the genomic information, you know, tells you something you didn't already know. That's a good point. Well, exactly. Yeah. Well, uh, what do you think the overall take-home message of this commentary is? I think that um, the, the big take-home message is when you're developing uh, new tools um, for for the care for the treatment of any disease, cancer or any disease, um, it's important to make sure you're considering what's used in the standard of care um, as as you sort of uh, implement these new tools into practice. And so, in these trials, I think that. Um, we see one trial that did a better job than the other of, mm-hmm. of really sort of considering um, this new tool against the standard of care, which is clinical risk. Um, whereas in the other trial, um, clinical risk was not really considered at all. Um, you know, a metaphor that we use or sort of an example we give in, in the commentary that I, I think is a, a, a very good one is that, um, for example, in, in colon cancer, where, you know, clinical risk is used, uh, again, um, to help guide the decision of chemotherapy. And in, in that case, mostly in the presence of lymph node positivity or not, if we, if a new genomic or a sort of new sort of pr- uh, predictive tool was developed and did not look at lymph nodes at all and just looked at sort of gene expression profiling, um, that would sort of be problematic. You know, we're getting a lot of valuable information from, from the lymph nodes already. And so you'd have to show that the new tool um, is better than just looking at lymph node positivity alone. That is spot on. That is the question. Um, and, 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 and that is the difference between, um, you know, really kind of asking if new tools, expensive tools, improve outcomes over what we already do versus in lieu of what we already do. And asking them in lieu of what we already do is never a great question, uh, unless, of course, your goal is just to sort of debut the products as quickly as possible because uh, it's setting the bar, I think, far too low. Now, Ali, uh, you did this very important work. I guess, would it be fair to say that, um, uh, I mean, like when you actually approach a patient in this situation, would it be fair to have a strategy like this, which is that, you know, you calculate clinical risk um, and you talk to the patient. And uh, if the clinical risk is high uh, and the patient says, you know, I'm definitely going to want to want chemotherapy, uh, you know, no matter, even if the benefits are very, very small, which we all know there's some, that sort of patient, uh, then, you know, you proceed, uh, if the clinical risk is low and the patient says that, you know, even if there is some modest benefit, I'd want to forego it because I don't want chemotherapy, then you proceed. But it's only when, um, you know, you get the clinical risk back and the patient sort of says, well, I'm also kind of open-minded and, and that if the numbers were slightly different, I would do it. But if they're slightly less, I wouldn't. Uh, and only in that situation would you order the, uh, Oncotype DX. What do you think about that as sort of a practical on the ground? strategy or, or how or how do you think about that or how do you use this on the practical on the ground level yeah I think I think that's uh, exactly how I would use it is for those people who with the high clinical risk um, who either are averse to chemotherapy uh, but would do it if they thought there's a real benefit or people who are indifferent to chemotherapy and really are turning to you as a physician be like what do you recommend doc I think that's where 
uh, any of these tools are useful. And I think, I mean, I think that Mammaprint is still more useful than Oncotype because, you know, the trial there actually did that exact question um, more appropriately. And so I think that um, for people with high clinical risk who are not gung-ho about chemotherapy, I would probably send them a, a, a Mammaprint. And then if it came back as high clinical risk, um, would would proceed with chemotherapy. And if it came back as low clinical risk, you know, um, would sort of forego chemotherapy. But if, again, if the patient is convinced that based on the high clinical risk that they're uh, going to get chemotherapy regardless, then you don't need to do this study at all. It's well put. I want to take a minute and just talk about your career plans. So uh, you, are, uh, you are both a GU oncologist, but also a budding health services researcher. And you have ties to the high core group, which is the... Hutchinson Center for Outcomes Institute for Research. For oh, God. Research. Oh, yeah. oh, I knew I was going to bungle it. Okay. <laughs> Hutchinson Institute for Cancer Outcomes Research? Yes. Yeah. I see. Uh, yeah. So I, I've been very fortunate to work um, here at the Hutch with Vina Shankar as one of my mentors. She's one of the co-directors of HICOR. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's actually a, a GI oncologist, but she's been helping me uh, with my interests sort of, especially around uh, health utilization. Uh, especially near the end of life. And so I've been working with her on some projects. And then I also have a mentor, uh, Dr. Petros Grivas in the GU group, who I've done some other work with, um, looking at sort of uh, utilization of checkpoint inhibitors and in sort of uh, patients with advanced disease or near the end of life. I see. So you found them to be a supportive group. Yeah, it's, been, it's actually been a, a really nice pairing of, of uh, two different mentors to help sort of uh, support me uh, with my different sort of interests and and using both their expertise in different ways to sort of help move my career forward. And what do you want to do in the long run? Yeah, so I mean, I, I'm really interested in um, continuing to work in the space of um, health outcomes and health services research. Um, as, I've been really drawn to, to bladder cancer because I think it's an, an interesting disease where there's been a lot of recent um, therapies that have been approved. And so there's, there's as we're approving these therapies and, and bringing them to practice, it's it's useful to have people who are thinking about, are we doing that responsibly and appropriately? And that's where I think health outcomes and health services research is, is most useful. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then I, I'm always drawn to patients who have advanced disease or are near the end of life, because I think they're some of the most vulnerable patients. So a lot of my interests are trying to make sure that we don't over-treat those patients. You know, I've done some work um, looking at sort of ED visits and ICU, stay, ICU admissions near the end of life, and then also the use of checkpoint inhibitors, um, especially um, because that's become a, a, a very common new practice for patients with sort of advanced solid malignancies. Um, for that last point, you know, um, there was, a, I think it was in 2018, spring of 2018, that there was that New York Times article titled Desperation Oncology, mm-hmm. uh, where uh, Oliver Sartor, a GU oncologist at Tulane, was was quoted saying, I, I no patient should die without getting a checkpoint inhibitor. And I think that, mm-hmm. that was the thing that sort of um, became the the inspiration for a lot of my research and a lot of my, my work is I got sort of, I, I think it's, it, I worry that we have that sort of narrative about anything because I think that even the least toxic medications we use still can have some harm. Um, and so I think that we need to be make sure we're being responsible at how we use check, immune checkpoint inhibitors. So I spent a lot of time thinking about that um, during my research time here at the Hutch. When I was a fellow at the NIH, there was a faculty member, a very senior and distinguished faculty member, who once told me, it is easier to give a patient more treatment than it is to have an honest conversation. And uh, that stuck with me because I do think it speaks to 
um, one of the challenges here, which is that it is often easier for the provider um, to continue to give um, quote-unquote life-prolonging therapy, and I put it in quotes because it's not necessarily proven that it would prolong life, um, rather than be able to have an honest discussion with someone about the fact that uh, it might not be feasible uh, to improve their longevity or their quality of life, and that sometimes treatments uh, bring great misery, um, and that sometimes achieving a good death is a doctor's uh, sole duty and, and, and obligation and, and the best we can do. So yeah, I, my, yeah. my camera's not here, but you, I'm nodding a lot to everything you're saying. I agree 100% with, with everything you're saying. Well, I want to thank you for coming on Plenary Session Stage and talking about a very difficult topic, which is risk prediction, and making the very important point that new tools, although they are shiny, although they are new and costly, uh, the real question, the real bar they should be held to is whether or not they improve our behavior, our prediction, beyond all the tools we currently have. And you can't give someone a new tool and go to their toolbox and throw it in the trash uh, and take away all their old tools. That's not the right way to validate new tools. So uh, thanks for writing this commentary. I think people should read it because it gets into a lot more than what we could talk about here, a lot more of the data. Uh, it's called Clinical Risk During the Evaluation of Genome Risk for Hormone-Sensitive Breast Cancer, Ignoring Valuable Data. And it's out now in the JNC. CN. So, Dr. Kaki, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you, Vinay. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to Season 2 of Plenary Session. I've been your host, Dr. Vinay Prasad. Plenary Session was produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. Review this podcast at the iTunes Store. Supporters of this podcast can back us on Patreon. Patreon allows you to support artists you like, and Patreon backers will get access to all of the slides discussed on Plenary Session. Got questions for the show? Tweet to us at plenary underscore session or email us at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. We love fielding listener questions. Thanks for listening. <laughs>